This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. The climate cannot be saved just through tech innovations. We'd love that because we're good at that. But I do believe uh, the climate needs to be saved by a change in behaviors. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Simone, a warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for inviting me. You're the general manager at the Swiss Technology Fund, which grants loan guarantees to Swiss clean tech startups. And before we talk about that impressive construct, I want to learn more about your personal background. You actually studied in Switzerland, but also in the US. And why did you opt for an international education and what effect did that have on you? I think when you're young and studying at Zurich University, you just, you're, you're curious and you want to see more of the world and you, you kind of think, wow, Switzerland's such a small country. I need to go outside and see what else is there. So I just, I was kind of na naive and I just tried to apply to various universities. So I got into Harvard and I got into this exchange program at IU, Indiana University. And I got to say, at the time, it was a very different experience from studying here. Because in Zurich, it was still very much paper-based and everyone was sitting there with their books open and their pencils. <laughs> and in the U.S., it was all everyone with their laptops, especially in the MBA program I attended. Everything was online and we were using Lotus Notes and everything was PowerPoint and Excel. And so I think I would say I definitely started my Excel career <laughs> <laughs> in the U.S. because that was just what he had to use, and especially for business. I thought it was invaluable. It was really kind of important at the time. And uh, the other study I did in, in Boston was very different because I, I tried to open the, uh, broaden my horizon a little bit and I did more political science and economic history classes and I thought that was super interesting. Also from a more of an American point of view, which is obviously different. Absolutely. And then still you decided to come back to Switzerland. Was it never an option for you to then stay in the US with that, uh, you know, study background that you had? I don't think I ever considered. Yeah. I think I'm a, I'm a home girl. I, I love living here. I think it's fantastic. And I have my family here and I have friends from the age of six years still and I, I enjoy being around them. So it never really was an option. Fair point. So then you came back and your Excel skills that you learned were certainly helpful because you then actually worked as a CFO until 2009. And then you started working for Emerald Technology Ventures. So that's quite a step to take, you know, from the, the CFO role into the venture world. What led you to that step and, you know, also gave you sort of the, the thing to, to really take the leap and say, hey, now really, really dive into the, the venture world. 
for me, it wasn't such a big change no. because I had always been a finance person. Yeah. So I studied financial markets. I was always dealing with small companies, family-led companies, also at Helping, where I was a consultant. It was all about small businesses and um, doing everything in a small setting rather than doing a very small part in a large setting. So for me, the switch wasn't that crazy, I would say. And coming from my job in, as a CFO, I, I just really, I wanted my next adventure be in an industry that was very, very promising for the future and that was that has a high potential for growth. Um, so I was looking at two options, either sustainability, clean tech, or health, because I think health is also another sector that can needs and will evolve dramatic, dramatically over the next couple decades. So um, I saw this ad, job ad by Emerald, and it just caught my eye. And I started and I've had various functions there from controlling to financial analysts, analysis to um, technology fund now. So for you, it was more of a natural evolution from the CFO role. Yes, I never thought of it as a change. I also really don't like commuting. So I was looking for something <laughs> in Zurich because I, I love living here and working here and have mm -hmm. making it easy and efficient. So yeah. yeah, for me, it was a very small step. And you already briefly touched upon it, but what really fascinates you about the clean tech venture world, especially? I think I love working with very smart people and upbeat people and kind of people who want to be ambitious and find new things. Um, sometimes if you work for an SME or small, medium company, everything's done the same way. And because it's worked last year, we're going to do it the same this year. And in the venture world, you're inundated with data and new things all the time and, and technical innovations. And the, the people working in that field really have to mirror that and, and go with the flow. Otherwise, you're done, right? So I think it just attracts this very intriguing personalities that are fun to work with. And you know, this think big, uh, being ambitious, this also sounds a bit like the American mindset. So maybe still some effects of your studies there? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I remember my professor, who also happened to be a three-star general, just jumping on the tables and screaming. And <laughs> it wasn't anything of the boring kind. Oh, let's do a little case study here. But it was very much, yeah, let's go for it. And now you bring that mindset to the Swiss venture world. And in 2014, there was the Swiss Technology Fund that was actually being created. Um, Emerald won a mandate by the Swiss government. Can you talk a bit about how that was created, how the uh, you know Swiss Technology Fund was actually born back then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting process. I mean, uh, the idea was created by politicians who wrote a law and they wrote in the CO2 tax, uh, a CO2 law, that there should be a technology fund supporting as kind of sustainable Swiss startups and companies. And then the government had the uh, job to find a nice structure that would make sense. And I think in our case, our counterparts is the um, Federal Office for the Environment. And they didn't want to become a VC and hire a lot of people who would understand their business and who would be networked with all the banks and all the funds and all the companies. So it was decided to find an external management agency, we say. 
and uh, there was a tender, so everyone could apply for it. And uh, we at Emerald Technology Ventures won it together with South Pole. And I think probably because at the time we had already been in venture for 15 years and really knowing all these technologies that are important to um, help with climate change, right, or combat it. And uh, at the same time, South Pole was also an expert in complementing our strengths with all their knowledge about CO2 politics and CO2 emission reductions and the measurement of that. Fantastic. And yet you have a very impressive track record, so it was hard to pass on your offer, I could imagine. I hope so, yeah, or I think so. <laughs> now, the Swiss Technology Fund actually hands out loan guarantees to clean tech startups. What's the exact problem that you solve there? So are getting loans really that big of a problem for the startups that you work with? Absolutely. So I would say we have about 90% startups in our portfolio and about 10% more um SME type companies. Mm -hmm. And what I see is that most of the startups would not get a loan. The banks love working with them because I think they're the clients of the future and they also want to get involved with all the founders because they're the maybe the clients of the future for the wealth management. <laughs> like if the plan works out. Yeah. If it does, yes. The 90% of the startups uh, that are rather young uh, wouldn't get a loan at all. And uh, the other part of our clientele, if you wish, uh, are SMEs, and they would maybe get a loan, but they would have to pay a higher interest rate. So uh, there we really help making a project uh, more profitable or feasible. And in the case of startups, uh, we help the founders complement uh, an equity raise with a little bit of debt, and we help them get less diluted with their uh, funding strategy. Fantastic. And that's actually my follow-up question. Why does it make sense to focus on loans and not do uh, you know, an equity round or real venture investing yourself? Because then I could imagine also the Swiss government would benefit from that if the plan works out, right? Yes, that is a good question. And currently there is discussion whether the public sector should become more involved, right? Whether we should do our own venture funds. But at the time, it was clear that the government didn't want to get involved too much and also didn't want to mess up the market too much. Mm -hmm. So this this system was found where the Swiss government only gives the guarantee, the security for any bank or lender to, to give out the loan. And so the government doesn't really have to pay unless it goes wrong, yep. unless they default on the loan. So it's a very nice setup. We can enable all these investments. And actually, we've just measured that uh, we've uh, mobilized a sum of money, uh, 2.3 fold of, of the guarantees that we've been granting. So all the companies in our portfolio have been raising equity and equity-like funds over the course of our cooperation. That is more than almost two and a half times what we are giving out. So that is a fantastic kind of leverage Absolutely. of uh, public help or support. And you actually also don't give out the loans yourself, right? You have other lenders that take on that part. So why does that setup then also make sense that you as a Swiss technology fund don't give out the loans yourself? I think it's the same thing. So the government doesn't want to become a bank. Mm -hmm. And we're also not FINMA regulated or anything. So we're not interfering too much with the Swiss financial system. We just support the banks where they otherwise couldn't really risk it. And then with our help, they can 
A, fund the companies or B, give them much better conditions? So to that extent, you're actually a trust builder, but also a safety net in the same. Yes, yes, correct. Fantastic. And what sort of startups can actually apply to get a loan from you or through you indirectly? That's a good way of putting it, getting a loan through us. So that's the question we get asked the most. Um, We have three main criteria. Number one really is the environmental impact. And so because uh, our fund is financed through CO2 tax money, so public money, uh, we have to make sure to support sustainable business ideas that really have a measurable impact on CO2 emissions. It can also be through resource saving or uh, using less fresh water or any other resource, um, metal or whatever, wood. Um, so, But it has to be measurable. And we really ask the companies to have clients who can prove or or tell us, uh, yes, I'm saving 10% energy by using this smart home system, for example. Mm-hmm. So we're a bit, um, bit strict, and the companies don't always find it easy to really quantify their impact. A lot of companies are used to just saying in their marketing material, ooh, we're, we're very sustainable, but n- no one is really forced to quantify it until we come in the picture and, and ask for it. Yeah. But then it also helps them. So sometimes the companies will say, hey, thank you for being so persistent. And now we know how many thousands of tons we're saving and we're, we can actually use it in marketing as well. So it's a bit two-sided. Our second uh, criteria is market chances. And there it's super important that the companies are serving a market that is big enough that is growing ideally so that we see this kind of path to profitability. We know that they can find their niche or their spot. Mm -hmm. And it's also very important that they're not super, super early, but we want to see the initial 100,000 francs in revenue, commercial revenue with real clients, paying clients. (laughs) And that is unfortunately a hurdle a lot of companies haven't taken yet. And we have to deny uh, some applications and almost half the time it's because they're too early. So I really encourage the companies to wait and get the initial clients, make a little bit of money with them, have that 100,000 in revenue Mm -hmm. and then come to us. But I mean, that also makes sense, right? Because then to get to the 100,000 in revenue, that's probably where the venture investing in exchange for equity is probably a better instrument to get there And once you have sort of proven that, hey, what we're building works, then a loan can be a a good addition on top, but before it's probably too early. Absolutely. I think most venture debt funds actually would wait a bit longer than we are waiting. We are clearly a support system. Mm -hmm. And most venture debt funds, there aren't that many, but would probably want companies to, to be closer to break even than we do. And I know as for a fact, the banks would definitely wait for the companies to be break even. They will not touch a company beforehand usually, um, but we are a bit more uh, flexible. So we just say, hey, we, we, it's okay if you're loss making now, but we want to believe in your kind of journey to break even. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to number three actually, <laughs> which is credit worthiness. Um, always super closely intertwined with market chances, right? Because 
I mean, creditworthiness defined as in your way to get to EBITDA break even. And that means you need to be able to ramp up your sales. And it's funny because a lot of companies present us with their venture cases, with their venture scenarios, and with huge growth rates and hockey sticks. And we just, we don't need to see all that. We almost force them sometimes to do a a downside scenario where we say, hey, if things are not exploding tomorrow, you know, if they're not going that well, mm-hmm. how are you going to survive? And how how is your company going to look like? And so we like to work with kind of the worst case scenario and just make sure that they can survive in that scenario as well. But if we believe in a financial plan and, you know, the assumptions are good or we can follow them and we can believe in it, then it's okay for us. And I believe it's not just numbers. So creditworthiness is also a bit about a management team that is complete and a management team um, that has the relevant experiences. We love to see also more experienced founders or co-founders, not just a group of very young people together. Mm -hmm. So it helps to have people with relevant market connections and industrial understanding of how businesses are done. Because a lot of companies address large companies. So a lot of it is B2B. And it's very difficult as a young person to understand the world of B2B sales and B2B logic, I think. And also, I think about transparency. So for me, creditworthiness really means I can trust these people. That what they are saying uh, comes from the heart and it's true and I'm not being tricked. So very, very important that they're transparent and open and honest with us. Mm-hmm. So it's much more than just the numbers that you look at. Yes, I would say that, yeah. And now once they then get accepted in the process, I think there are also some costs associated with the whole process and the loan uh, for the startup. Can you elaborate a bit more about mm-hmm. the cost structure there? Yes, I think there is the obvious cost. So they have to pay an annual fee for the tech fund guarantee of 0.9% of the guarantee. And then they pay for the loan. They pay a normal interest rate of usually, you know, between 1% or 2%, which is quite cheap if you look at venture. You always say that equity is much more expensive than debt. And if you can, can, de- if you can get debt, you should get it. Um, but I think there's also another factor of cost, which is time and work. So we do require a little bit of reporting, actual uh quarterly reporting and annual reporting, very similar to a bank. But I think some banks would only ask for annual reporting. Mm -hmm. But I think with young companies, it's key that you can follow them and you know the good and the bad, you know, the ups and the downs. And we are kind of responsible towards our sponsor, which is the Federal Office for the Environment, to know what's going on. <laughs> so if they call me and say, Simone, how is it going? I just say, I don't know. <laughs> that would not be so good. So right. we have a, a risk management um, and that is largely based on very good quarterly reporting. And thank you for all the reportings for those of you who are listening in. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, okay, that makes sense that you also have the, the costs there, which are quite standard but very attractive from a from a startup perspective i mean you probably never find these terms anywhere else what's a bit astonishing here for me is that you have zero upside as a fund right as a swiss technology fund so we already heard about your mission uh, so it's much more beyond just you know making money so it makes sense that you have zero upside but 
you also have a, a certain default rate that you need to achieve, that you need to hit. This was mind-blowing when he told that to me in the prep call. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because every other investor would probably say, you're nuts. Who would go for a minimum default rate? Yes, it's it's really too funny. I think banks will always work with a 0%. Of course, yeah. Good target uh, yeah. default rate. But, you know, if you look at venture, the, the picture is a bit different because every venture investor knows that he or she will not get a 0% <laughs> default rate. In fact, you even talk about an 80% default rate and you make your money, yeah. your return on the other 20%, hopefully. So we're not that far off, you know, we're in between a bank and a VC investor. And it's not that someone's going to imprison me if we don't hit the 20 to 30% default rate, or Luckily. at least I don't hope so. <laughs> um, I think it's just, uh, it's an accepted range of default. And politically, if we do get 20 or 30% default, so no one can really, um, yeah, hold us accountable or say that we did a bad job. They can hold us accountable, but no one can say this was a bad job. Mm -hmm. In fact, the opposite would be kind of the case. So if we only support mature, successful, the best of the best startups, and we would come out with this default rate of 5% or 6% as we have now, politicians could come back to us and say, hey, the idea was actually that you support startups who need you, not just the high flyers who would live without you. So I think it would be good to hit the 20 or 30%. But I would be happy not to go way beyond that. Because I think um, the higher the default rate, the more discussions and the more criticism you could possibly attract. But at the same time, that's quite a balance to strike for, right? Because you want to minimize the risk to a certain degree, but also you are incentivized to go and have a bit higher risk, but it could also be too much so that's quite uh, you know, a tough balance to, to get right. Yes. And also remember that our average duration is seven and a half years. So yeah, right. You will only find out later. It's a long time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think also for startups who are one or two years old, they don't really know how the world's going to look, how their markets or clients are going to look and how they're going to look and, and what the product's going to look like, or the, especially the softwares, they, they change and they have to change on a quarterly basis and they have to mm -hmm. release new features and all that. So it's very, very difficult to know exactly what's going to happen in seven and a, half, and a half years. I think what we can do, we've been in operation for seven years now, and we have a, a default rate of around 6% now, and a success rate of successful exits where our money was not used and pay, paid back the loan. So that's also about seven or eight percent. So we can steer it a little bit. You know, if we already had 30 percent losses today, maybe I should think, hey, uh, our team should be a little more cautious. Mm -hmm. Maybe let's err on the, you know, more conservative side for the next two or three years. So we can steer it over the long term. But you're right. It's, it's not an easy um, triage. I can imagine. But to manage that triage, you have an application process in place. So can you walk us through that process, how it looks like from a startup, but also a Swiss technology fund perspective? Yes. Yeah, so also here, I think we're between a bank and a VC investor. So on the VC side, I've been part of the diligence processes that go way beyond one year, uh, where you really turn every page. 
and I hear from the banks that the process is uh, rather shorter. So they, you know, maybe you use a couple of days work to analyze a case. So we use between 15 and 20 days uh, to analyze a case. And we have a sort of a three-step process where we try to, um, if we have to say no, we try to find out early on in the pre-selection and deny those applications early on just to kind of limit the frustration potential but also the workload on -hmm. both sides because you do create a lot of work on the company side but also in our team so we don't want to work for nothing and then if it all looks good if we can kind of see hey there's there's a sustainability case there's a market chances are good and it's credit worthy numbers look good then we go into due diligence light, uh, where we look a bit in more detail at the innovation and the business model and also the financial plan. Can we find kind of a scenario that looks good enough for us? And we also look at the CBs of the management and things like that. And if it still looks good, then we go into step three, which is due diligence. And there it's more about just a formal data room where we know we need to look at um, the shareholder agreements and the insurance contracts and the real estate contracts and all that. And then if if we're still uh, positive, we write an application and it's a bit shorter than in venture. So it's around 20 page application to our committee where we um, talk about all the three criteria and whether we think they fulfill them and kind of what the um, um, competitors are and, you know, how they differentiate themselves and all that. And then in a positive case, the committee says yes. And then they get this letter from the government that says, I government will give you this guarantee if you find a bank. Fantastic. And how does the, uh, you know, the investment committee actually make these decisions? Because I can imagine that's the 20 pages. You have to analyze them and then you have to make a decision. So who sits on that committee and how are the decisions being made there? It's a very good question. So we have seven people on a committee. Two are from the government. So one is from the energy sector and one from the clean tech, uh, the environment sector. And they bring in a lot of experience on generally how uh, governments support companies and they see some of the companies earlier on because they do kind of an early stage support as well through the, the pilot and demonstration program at the energy department or also through kind of the environmental technology program. So they make sure we really apply the principles of good governments, which is you have to treat everyone equally and you have to be transparent. And also it has to be almost auditable, like your your decisions have to there needs it needs to be tracked like what 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 are you looking at and why are you saying certain things right mm-hmm. so they keep us in check and then we have five people from the private sector so we have bankers persons from the private equity world persons from um industry a person from a, an engineering office and a person uh that does a lot of startup consulting actually and so they bring in all the experience from the market and, you know, how it is out there and uh, a lot of the risk management and a lot of the knowledge on is this business really going to fly or not? Uh, because uh, especially the people working at larger industrial companies, 
um, they look at startups as well, right? They they do a lot of open innovation and they have their corporate VC teams. And so this is not news to them. And they really bring on kind of the perspective of a potential client maybe for the startups new thing. And then once a loan has actually been granted, you also mentioned the reporting that you want to see on a quarterly basis. Is there anything else, you know, like a traditional VC fund does to support the companies, the startups after they invested in them? Is there anything else that you also do uh, in, in that regard once they have received the loan guarantee from your side? So we're actually not allowed to uh, act as a consultant or mm-hmm. uh, we're not on the board either, which is a bit weird for a VC, right? We usually like to be on the boards, but right. at the technology fund, we're not. Uh, and we're not to influence the management too much, and we're not to uh, crowd out private consultants. But of course, we have a good network to other funds, especially we work very closely with now 29 other funds active in Switzerland in this climate tech space. So if there's a funding round or problem, then maybe we can help them establish connections or talk to the relevant people. Or, of course, we work with uh, 24 banks at the moment, and at every bank we have a responsible person for the mandate for technology funds. So we can facilitate discussions and find solutions and, um, yeah, find solutions where either the bank or us or the company has to contribute something. But we have this experience of kind of troubleshooting uh, now after seven years and we can apply that but we're not managing and we're not interfering and we're not on the board in, in this case of the tech fund. So you're not an active investor but certainly a supporter, a door opener for the startups that you work with. Yes, definitely. And you mentioned the challenges, they are part of every entrepreneurial journey so I also want to talk about some obstacles that you might have had to overcome in the past. The first one is despite, despite having great conditions here in Switzerland, it can also be very difficult to recruit startups for your offering. You know, we have, uh, you know, a lot of wealth here. We have also sometimes quite comfortable jobs. And then people just don't want to accept additional help or just don't even look for it because they're already doing quite well. So how big of a challenge was that for you in the early days to really recruit and motivate startups to join and make use of your amazing offering? It was actually much harder than you think you would think. Because um, initially we thought we could just establish our work and then just sit there and accept applications. <laughs> Maybe that was a bit naive, right? Every startup knows that's not the case. But uh, it was actually also hard to find banks to work with us because it was pre-COVID. No one was using guarantees at the time. It was a new, mm-hmm. almost like an old new concept um, that had a little bit of an of an image of being complicated and uh, the banks were afraid that we wouldn't pay if you know companies default so there was a lot of hesitation on the bank's side as well and I remember just cold calling all these banks together uh, with my colleague and some of them would welcome us and some of them just didn't they just didn't see the point and they didn't see a lot of interest in their clientele I think you have certain regions in Switzerland where you have a lot of innovation going on and a lot of climate tech companies. That's around EPFL and ETH Zurich. And then in BL and a couple other regions where you also have universities. So I would say in this kind of middle area of, of Switzerland, you have uh, a lot going on. But then in some 
in, in Grissons or in Uri, you just have less um, companies that are relevant. So mm -hmm. the banks weren't as interested initially. Now they are, and now they want to foster this kind of innovation system and they want to help with climate change and they they seek out uh, people who uh, cl companies who could be eligible but in t 2014 it was all kind of new and they were a bit suspicious and the same goes for the companies i think there was always a group of well-networked startups that are just well-informed you know everyone reads blogs and listens to podcasts and, and it's just generally networked through the university and they all came without much effort from our side. But then mm -hmm. after a certain while we realized we can be active in so many industries and so many sectors and each of them almost needs to be addressed separately, also the regions. And so we, we created this ecosystem of network partners. Uh, ranging from universities to innovation centers to big companies to kind of uh, associations as well, like SwissMem or others, uh, that help spread the word. And, and we do um, a lot of events together and uh, we write about us and we're on social media and all these things, which you could call marketing. So we, we do marketing for a support program. But I think that's that's a key success factor. So otherwise, maybe I would sit here and have 10 companies. And but now sure. I'm sitting here having 115 companies. So I, I think it was probably worth it. But that's really a bit mind-blowing because I think from a bank's perspective, you know, you have to guarantee they have to save income through the interest rate. That's like a no-brainer. That's like free money for them without any risk. And also mm -hmm. for the startups, usually you, you think whenever we talk about investors or raising funds, there's so much interest that really companies are really interested in learning or even getting access to those funds. So... To me, that's really a bit mind-blowing that there was not more demand. But you still have to inform everyone and explain True. the concept, right? I mean, the guarantee. You have to remember a lot of the founders are not really financial people. So what is a guarantee? What is a loan? You know, you first sure. have to learn all that. And uh, the SMEs, again, on the other side, they're just trying to self-finance everything and not get involved with any banks. Because I think there's this general fear in the market in SMEs that, oh, you need to be, stay independent at all costs. And you'd rather grow slowly than having a dependence on a bank, right? So yeah. you have to reach everyone. You have to convince them. You have to inform them. And you have to build trust, I think, with everyone involved. And, and that is just not done overnight. Mm -hmm. And if we look at your portfolio, you're active for both startups and SMEs, but your portfolio is mostly filled with startups. Is that something that you anticipated that was also a priority for you or would you like to have it a bit more balanced in the future? I didn't anticipate it. I thought it would be 50-50. Okay. Uh, so it was a bit of a surprise. Uh, but I did have very early on people telling me that it's going to be hard to reach SMEs and to find SMEs who are interested. So I think about those people quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I must admit they're right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, but uh, we're trying to make it more balanced. And quite frankly, I mean, the companies, the startups in our portfolio are growing. They're getting old with us, right? I mean, they're maturing yeah. with us. And so it's quite nice to see how they're moving into the more... Um, more quiet waters and uh, growing and I, I make a little chart every year with uh, 
sales and EBITDA. And so they're all moving towards, you know, more sales and more positive EBITDA, which is nice to see. I mean, technically, the startups that you work with quite early on, they eventually become SMEs later down the road. Yes. Right? So ideally, yes. There will be a natural balance <laughs> in the future, probably. Yes. And we actually also have a bunch of exits. Uh, that remain in our portfolio. So yeah. successful company gets acquired by a Japanese measurement company. And the the new owner, the Japanese company, is looking at the balance sheet and thinking, oh, wow, this is nice. You know, I have this loan in there and it's not expensive and we're just going to keep it. That's a great deal. So <laughs> I love these companies. We have um, four or five right now mm-hmm. where the risk for us is dropping dramatically because I don't think these large conglomerates are going to have trouble repaying right. on average 1.8 million. For them, that's just a rounding error. So it's nice for us because we still have the companies that are in our portfolio and they're saving CO2 and working with us on that. But at the same time, the risk has dropped. Dramatically. That's great. That's a fantastic development. Yeah. <laughs> At the same point, you also mentioned the default rate of about 6%, if I remember correctly. So what actually happens if a company cannot pay back their loan? So, so far, it's been mostly through bankruptcy. So uh, then it becomes apparent that a company is illiquid and cannot repay a loan, in which case the bank comes to us and says, hello, tech fund. This company, as you've seen, uh, is in a bankruptcy ruling or in the courts, and so we want our money back. And then the federal government pays back that loan and formally becomes uh, um, the bank or the new lender Mm -hmm. to that company, which is uh, bankrupt. And then it takes a couple of years to dissolve the company. You actually try to sell all the assets, not us, but the, the bankruptcy administrator tries to sell all the assets and he or she um, usually if there's a patent or a software, you know, tries to find a, a large company who will pay a decent price. Sometimes it also gets bought by one of the founders or someone from, from kind of the startup ecosystem who is then trying to get a, a second shot. But normally startups don't have a huge asset base. So normally uh, we don't get anything back. Normally, our, it's called a dividend. It's called a bankruptcy dividend. It's a weird word, but that would be zero, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. But that's okay, because we, we know that might happen. And as I said earlier, and as you pointed out, we are allowed to have a default rate of 20 or even 30%. I mean, yeah, that's part of the game, right? Yes. I mean, everybody should know who gets involved in that space that this is reality. This is yes. part of it. Yes. Have you also ever had a company that actually failed obtaining a loan despite the Swiss Technology Fund guarantee that you handed out? To my knowledge, only two out of the 150. So I think in one case... It was a company trying to establish a presence in Switzerland. They were, I believe, a Canadian company. And I assume they just didn't come through and they didn't find the other funds. I mean, we always require kind of a matching uh, portion of 40% other funds. Could be equity or shareholder loans or anything. But if you fail to obtain that, then the the whole thing falls through. And the other case had a... um, a letter from the government and didn't get the loan. Hard to say why, but um, 
probably maybe they just didn't find a bank who wanted to work with them despite the um security we could offer right there are also additional factors that the banks consider there of course mm-hmm. now if we actually look at your success um you have helped save more than four million tons of co2 emission and also supported more than 150 companies so how many more until the climate will be saved? <laughs> Unfortunately, many more, right? So, I mean, I, I wish the work was done, but the problem is the climate cannot be saved just through tech innovations. We'd love that because we're good at that. But I do believe uh, the climate needs to be saved by a change in behaviors. And uh, just as two examples, I mean, trying to make wise choices when eating, maybe eating less dairy and meat products and things like that, for example, or mobility, trying to commute less with your car, if you commute, maybe not with your car, even if it's Tesla, and uh, maybe try to fly less, or if you need to fly, maybe fly once a year and make it worth it, and don't go to New York to buy unnecessary Christmas presents. So I do believe there's this behavioral uh, component that cannot be circumvented. I mean, it's, it's like, it's it's a necessary part. And I also think in Switzerland, for example, a huge part of our mission comes from the building sector. So we need to invest heavily into our infrastructure. And that is very challenging because you have pension funds and you have individuals and you have people who can't even afford, uh, I don't know, they just don't have the money for a new efficient heating system when their old oil uh, fired one breaks, they just buy the cheapest replacement and because they don't have the funds, right? Or they don't have the energy to even look into extra loans and stuff. So I think that's a, a big part, right? I mean, we can do a lot of good with the tech fund and, and f- uh, funding innovation and software deals and whatnot, but there's also the people that have to change their behavior and there are incumbent infrastructures that just need to be updated. And we can't support that right now, maybe in the future. And yet still the technology part that you enable with your mission is an important piece because then you can actually make the cheapest option available a sustainable one, ideally, right? Mm -hmm. So I certainly do see the connection there Mm -hmm. that you can also have a very positive impact on the individual level. Definitely. I mean, we support a lot of companies that or, for example, active in the building sector through uh, more efficient heat pumps and through smart home management systems, through measuring air quality and improving uh, ventilation or through um, air clean, clean tech, like better air filters and, and things like that. So, yes, we are active in all sectors, but it just won't, the crisis won't be solved just uh, by providing technologies. I think it takes a lot more. And I think... I also like these cases that we see sometimes where companies have an innovative idea how they can help change consumer behavior through sometimes gamification or motivational aspects, which is is very neat. Absolutely. And we also wonder what's next for you, Simone, as a next step. What do you want to tackle next? I don't know. I, uh, as a working parent, I have very little time to strategize, which is probably <laughs> kind of a problem. <laughs> I should do that more. But I, I do see myself uh, in that space. I, I, I think I have the best job in Switzerland because I see so many companies and 
uh, I can work with all these interesting network partners like banks and funds and I could see myself doing that. I could also see myself doing uh, something uh, more of an equity program, but probably mm -hmm. still in that clean tech space, or maybe health, but maybe I'll stay in the clean tech, climate tech space. And uh, yeah, even sometimes I think I could do a, a new instrument supporting more diverse founder teams as well, um, and more women. So that would be also fun. And there are some funds out there who do that right now as well, but that would, couldn't be focused on Switzerland only because that would be a very small mm -hmm. uh, sample, right? I mean, maybe that would be focused on Europe or German-speaking Europe. That would be nice. Certainly many interesting options to choose from. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So to wrap up today's episode, we would also like to ask you about your personal gadgets and resources recommendations. So any blogs, books, podcasts, or any gadgets that you use yourself that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, with uh, the rise of home office, I, I really, I, I love sign now because I have to sign so many things and it makes <laughs> it very easy to have a, a, that tool to sign things with your colleagues. And uh, I also just discovered Canva, which is a really neat software to just do anything graphical, like any graphics, flyers, invitations, posts. So uh, a lot of people don't know Canva. Which is surprising, but uh, yeah, I can recommend everyone try it out. It's fun. We also heavily use that at Swisspreneur. It's a fantastic tool. It's great, yeah. Now for the final part, we have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you different options to choose from or a short question and you have to answer in one sentence. Okay. You ready? I hope so. Return or investment or on impact? Definitely impact. That's a clear choice for <laughs> yeah, you, for me. certainly. Regret granting a loan guarantee or regret not granting it? I think the second. I'd rather regret not granting it. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Seven. Nice. That, that's good, despite, you know, having two kids at home. <laughs> what does money mean to you? I think it means to me independence and flexibility and just being able to change my mind and, and do what I want to do without any constraints. I like that. And the last one for you, when analyzing an applicant, what's the most important factor for you? I think the most important is definitely that they fulfill all our three criteria, like I mentioned earlier. So impact, market chances, creditworthiness. But like I also said, I really love people who are candid and honest and transparent. Amazing. Simone, thank you so much for stopping by here. It was a pleasure talking to you and lots of success with whatever you'll be tackling in the future and hopefully many more great investments and loan guarantees. Thank you so much, Silvan. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.